opportunity to study and to learn from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Taylors were a proud family and proud of their heritage. Their ancestors had traveled to America as pilgrims on the Mayflower, and they had descendants that were congressmen, entrepreneurs, even Hollywood stars. So they decided to research all of the family history, uh, something they could pass on to their children and their grandchildren. So they found a genealogist and a writer to help put it all together for them. So they, uh, one problem arose, however, in the process. How were they going to handle Uncle Jefferson Taylor, who was executed in the electric chair? So the person who was helping write this said, don't worry, I'll cover it very tactfully. So when the final copy came out of their family tree, and it got to the section about Jefferson, it read this way, Great Uncle Jefferson Taylor occupied a chair of applied electronics at an important government institution. He was attached to his position by the strongest of ties, and his death came as a great shock. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, as you know, for the past decades, people have been having a heightened interest in tracing their family trees and getting their blood, you know, swab DNA stuff to find out what you have in your background. And uh, you can go back through the helps of these different companies and find where, where they landed, especially Ellis Island and get a lot of information, even health records of those who arrived there when they immigrated. Well, in the opening verses of our study today, what we have is Moses giving Ancestry.com about Abram. So, starting way back with one of the sons of Noah, in particular Shem, and then Arpashad, who was born two years after the flood. And from there, he lists the lifespan of each of the individuals born in this family line. He speaks of Shelah, Eber, Peleg, Ru, Sereg, and Nahor. And Nahor's son was Terah. And Terah himself had three sons, one of which brings us to Abram. And how it came to be that he also had in his care his nephew Lot, because Haran, the brother of Abram, had passed away. So it was through this line that originated way back with Seth in Genesis that God would hinge all of biblical history on. So the focus of our study this semester is the life of Abram. And I may say Abraham, Abram, you know who I'm talking about. Uh, he demonstrates for us such great faith and trust in God. Even when he had very little information, even what, what God asked him to do seemed hard to understand. And a key reason why we should study this chapter, these books um, about this man's life, I always quote from Romans 15:4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We all need hope. We all need encouragement each day that we live. And so studying this man and studying his walk of faith will bring encouragement to us and hope so that we can finish our race. This is our time. We want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, when our time has passed. As we saw in that genealogy as well, Abram married a woman named Sarai who was unable to have children. And we read in verse 31 that Abram lived in Ur, which today is southern Iraq. It was a city of great luxury and splendor, and archaeologists have found jewels, musical instruments, highly skilled craftsmanship from their digs of this area. 
So why would Abram leave this city for a foreign land he didn't even know anything about? Because this pagan man was called by God to follow him. Though he was a pagan who was a worshiper of the moon god and many others, God in his mercy and grace reached down and revealed himself to Abram. So from this man, uh, this man begins then this amazing walk of faith. And his life is detailed for us so that we can learn what it's like to walk by faith as well. Chapter 12 then is a pivotal, pivotal chapter in Genesis because it points us uh, and centers God's attention not on the peoples and the nations of the world at large, but rather on one man and his family. This is the beginning of redemption being unfolded in God's plan as it's made clear. And this is why it's so important that we have this genealogy to bring us from Shem's descendant to Abram. My outline is not original with me. As a matter of fact, not much is original with me. I have great sources with my husband's books and notes and libraries. So I just take what I gleam and share with you with maybe some application for me. So we're going to look at characteristics of faith that we see in the life of Abram. And we see that it begins with God's call. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land that I will show you. So here in verse 1, there's a point in time that God broke into Abram's life and called him to follow the Lord. According to Joshua 24, Abram was uh, from a family of pagans who served many gods. Abram wasn't like a, some spiritual man who was out wandering, looking at the sky, saying, who is this great creator? Uh, and so he decided to believe in the Lord. No, rather God chose him and called him out of his idolatry because that was what fit God's sovereign plan. This reminds us that salvation and faith is the result of God doing the work in our lives. Faith begins with God as he moves in our lives to forsake our sin and to follow him. We read in Ephesians 2, 8 that faith is a gift from God and not as a result of works so that no one can boast about our salvation. It's also a calling to lead the old way of life and to follow God. It is God who gave Abram the faith to believe in him, even though he had once worshipped the moon. When God called Abram, he told him to leave his country, his relatives, his father's household. So the life of faith does mean that following the Lord involves turning from everything that would hold us back from full commitment to him. Everyone who comes to God must come on his terms and turn from a sinful past. That is why the Bible so clearly emphasizes the need for sinners to repent not just be sorry that you're a sinner, but specifically turn from the sins you're aware of in your past life and turn to the one true God. This call to walk by faith is not based on some abstract feeling, but rather is absolutely grounded in God's word. It's not a leap in the dark. There's no mysterious sign or miracle. We just read that the Lord told Abraham specific truths and Abram believed him. So faith is based on God's promises. That brings us to verses 2 and 3 that reveal that God gave Abram a series of promises, and we call it the Abrahamic covenant. And the basic promises are given here in verse 12, and it will be firmly established when we get to chapter 15. So God gave six unconditional promises to Abram, and they were not dependent on him or his descendants. It was just God's covenant. I will make you a great nation, this must have been sounded pretty amazing to Abram. He's 75. He and his wife have never had children. 
How can there be descendants when there have never been any children? And the name Abram means excellent father, but God was going to change that to father of a multitude when he renamed him Abraham. So do you ever find yourself doubting God's promises when circumstances seem impossible? Well, we can learn from Abram because he had hope. He believed the promises of God. And I remind you, ladies, at the birth of Isaac, what an incredible miracle that was. And the fact that Israel is a nation today is a miracle of what God can do through one old man and one old woman. Then God said, and I will bless you. He promised to make Abram prosperous materially. And that certainly came true. We'll see it next week in our lesson as well as chapters 24 and 35. And God said, and I'll make your name great. Remember the builders of the Tower of Babel? They thought they were going to make a great name for themselves, and we don't know who any of them were. But Abram's name is remembered because he was a man who believed God. He is still revered by three religions today, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. For the nation of Israel, uh, they came from Abram and his descendants through Isaac and Jacob. For the Arab nations, they descended from Abraham through Ishmael. Abraham is mentioned 74 times in the New Testament, and he is known as the friend of God and the father of all who believe. Then God said, and so you shall be a blessing. This man was a blessing to others in his time, and you know what? He's still a blessing because we're studying his life here today, and we're learning, and our lives can be enriched when we look at what his faith was like. Romans 4, 21 through 24 tells us that Abraham was saved the same way you and I are saved. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So Abraham was justified declared righteous by God the same way you and I are, by faith and trust in God and his word. And then God said, and I will bless those who bless you, and I, the one who curses you, I will curse. This promise was not only for Abram, but it also included the, nations, the nation that would come from him. As one writer put it, God's blessings or cursings of the people of the world, to a large extent, uh, it's determined by the way they treat Israel. You only need to look at history to see that as truth. Uh, Pharaoh and his army destroyed. Rahab and her family spared and blessed because she was kind to the Jewish spies. There are no more Canaanites today. And when the Greek empire desecrated the temple and eventually uh, they were conquered then by Rome, Spain was reduced to a powerless nation after the Inquisition against the Jewish people. Hitler's Germany went down after World War II and the Holocaust. England lost her empire when she abandoned Israel for political reasons. And the USA, well, we're certainly not far behind. We know that from Revelation that all nations will turn against Israel during the tribulation period. Uh, the great preacher from another era wrote this, when a nation dies, more often than not, the cause of death is that the nation has mistreated the Jews. Obviously, it's a matter of great concern to God. That doesn't mean that we have to agree with everything the nation does politically, but it does mean that our attitude towards the Jewish people and the nation needs to be one of love and compassion because God has chosen them for a unique purpose, and that purpose is seen in the final promise. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So in light of the 
of God turning away from dealing directly with rebellious nations like he did at Babel? How is God going to bless the whole earth and all the families of the earth through Abram? One of Abram's descendants would be the answer, and that is Jesus, who would bring salvation to people all over the world. We read in Revelation 5-9 that heaven is filled with people from every tribe, every nation, every language and tongue from all of the earth. So we've seen these promises to Abram, but what can we learn about faith? Faith is always based on God's word and his promises. Hebrews 11 is known as the faith chapter because it lists the great Old Testament men and women of faith. And the first verse of that chapter tells us, 11, uh, Hebrews 11, 1, that faith is the confident assurance of things hoped for. For what things do we hope for? We hope for all the promises God has made in his word regarding our future and the things that we don't have yet. Faith is living in a hope so real that it gives us absolute assurance. So our lives uh, are lived based on these promises, even though we can't see the outcome yet. Two, faith always is based on God's promises. So if you hear a preacher saying, or you're reading a book that's saying that whatever you determine should happen to you, because you say it and believe it in a positive way, then God is required to give that to you. Recognize that is error. That is not biblical. That isn't faith. So many make faith some type of magical formula or view it with a superstition. Abraham was a man who was presented with a series of specific promises from God. He didn't understand, have a clue how they were going to be fulfilled, but he believed God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. This means that you must believe God's word, even if it goes against what you feel, even if it goes against what makes sense to you. Now, another characteristic of faith is seen in verses 4 through 9, is faith responds in obedience to God's word. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him and lot with him. Now, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So in response to God's call to leave Haran, where they had stayed briefly, where his father passed away, um, they are on the way now to Canaan. Abram obeyed the call. He set out with his wife Sarah, Sarai and Lot nephew and many, many servants and tons of animals. We learn from Hebrews 11:8 that Abram did what God told him to do, even though he had no idea where in the world he was going. He just obeyed immediately and without hesitancy or, and without delay. It was only after he arrived in the land of Canaan that God informed him, this is the place, you're now in it, where all your descendants are going to possess. Abram's motive then for leaving so quickly wasn't what was to get his hands on some new real estate. He left quickly because God called him, and he had bare faith in what God said, and he obeyed. The call still goes out today from Jesus for his followers to forsake all and follow him. And when we follow him, we don't know where he's going to lead us. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We don't know what lies ahead, what pain, what suffering, what joy, what blessings. We don't have a clue. But we follow his leading no matter what. Why? Because true faith always results in obeying what God says in his word. The book of James reminds us that our faith proves itself by our works. This is seen by our obedience then to his word. And sometimes it's so hard to do. We struggle. We are required to do things we don't feel like doing, like forgive the person who has hurt you and crushed you. Stop the sin of worrying. 
break the habit. Put to death your absolute obsession with material things. These are the things we must do in obedience to God. So do you think Abram felt like leaving Ur and his friends and relatives and familiar home to go to a place where he didn't even know was his destination? But he did it because he trusted God's direction in his life. And really that is the key to obedience. When you don't know where he is leading you and you don't know what in the world he's doing, you trust his direction because you trust his character. He's sovereign, he's infinitely wise, and he's perfectly loving. And he's good. So this means that you and I are to be like Abraham, to trust him even if you don't know where he's leading you. One writer put it this way, true faith is content to travel under sealed orders. So Abraham obeyed God's word in spite of the big obstacle of the unknown. In verse 6, he finally arrives in this new land, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles, coming to Shechem, 40 miles north of Jerusalem. And here he camps at the Oaks of Morah. Moses mentions this specifically, uh, and then he mentions that uh, the pagans, the, now the Canaanite was in the land. So some people think this was a place where pagan priests declared their oracles. We're not sure, but a most pagan and wicked people lived here. Can you imagine how it must have been for Abram to come so far, only to discover there are already all kinds of people in this land? Not only that, they were a very violent and wicked people and hostile. And the faith in obeying God requires that we live in a midst of a hostile environment. Regardless of whether people oppose you or not, faith walks with God. This would be the experience of Abram and his descendants to be holy, to be different than those around you. Like Abram, we must obey God even when the culture that we live in opposes us at every turn. Verse 7 tells us, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So in an appearance of Christ, before the incarnation, before he came as a babe to Bethlehem, we have him appearing here, a theophany, and the Lord appeared directly to Abram, telling him that this would be his land one day of his descendants. And God was stronger than the Canaanites. One day, all the descendants of Abram would possess this land. The same need to believe God's word holds true for you and I today. We may live in a culture, as I said, that is hostile to Christ, but he is greater than those who oppose the gospel. His word assures us that he is the ultimate victor, no matter what it looks like is happening. And that's why we must keep our eyes on him and not our circumstances. So after this encounter with God, Abram sets up the first altar of worship to the Lord in Canaan, in the promised land. This was a testimony of his faith in God's promises. So regardless of making a trip to a destination unknown, arriving in a land, finding it filled with hostile people, Abram overcame these obstacles by trusting obedience. And even though God had promised this land to Abram's descendants, he ended up living his entire life as a nomad, moving his tent from place to place to place, dependent on the needs of the animals. And the only property he ever owned in his lifetime was the field he bought with a cave to which he buried his wife, Sarah. And even though the land he traveled in on had been promised to him by God, and he believed God would give it, he would never possess it in this life. We read in Hebrews 11:9 that Abraham fixed his spiritual gaze on an eternal city, known in the New Testament as the New Jerusalem. Therefore, he was patient to live in tents, and he knew something greater was awaiting him. 
What kept him going and obeying was that he focused beyond his present circumstances to the unseen eternal blessing that awaited him. That just reminded me of Colossians 3, set your mind on the things above. So what about you? When things don't seem to be working out as you thought, when you're discouraged by life's events, scripture here reminds us that we are just aliens in this world. This is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. We should therefore not become so attached to this world. It is our temporary home, and you only have to live through, you know, a hurricane, your house being flooded by broken pipes, whatever, all those things you hold dear, and suddenly it's irrelevant. It's gone. We can endure discomfort like Abraham did as we focus, like him, on our eternal future, our real home. We must keep reminding ourselves of those truths as we go through this life because this is temporary. Only thing that matters is that we please God. And the only way we please him is by having faith in him and obeying his word. One of the wonderful things about scripture, which is proof that it is inspired by God and that it's encouraging too, is that scripture always paints the whole picture of its heroes. It never hides the faults of the heroes of faith. No matter how strong a person may be in their faith, they are not immune to struggles, they are not immune to failure, and every one of us here can say, yes, I know, because I am a failure. Verses 10 through 20, we see the example of failure in this great man of faith. I mean, to do all this, make this trip, and believe God's going to give me kids, but now, (gasps) what a total change at the moment. God sent a test, and he failed the test. So the trial came, Verse 10, now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came about when he came near to Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, see now, I know that you are a beautiful woman, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they'll kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. No pressure. If you don't do this, they'll kill me. Whatever. So there was this famine in the land, and you know, the land is always dependent on rain, and Canaan had famines all the time. But for Abram, who came from Ur, being faced with this famine became really a crisis of his faith. He had come all this way, he had obeyed and believed God completely, and now there's a famine. And the test was this God had promised to bless Abram, but now he was faced with the danger of being totally wiped out. How will he and his household have food? How will the animals eat? What should he do? Stay in the land God called him to? Trust God to provide his needs somehow? Or just do what's the common, logical, common sense thing? Where's food? Go there. Well, does this ring a bell? (laughs) How often we face our issues and problems that come our way in the same way. We make decisions uh, whether we are going to trust the Lord or just do even, it's like, we automatically go to default and say, well, this is how I'll fix it. Well, this is what I'll do. And we don't even consult the Lord. We think our way makes sense. In Abram's case, he failed the test because he made a man-centered decision. And it was a logical decision. If there's no food, I'll go where there's food. Well, Abram then went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Unlike the land of Canaan, Egypt wasn't going through the famine. So Abram and all with him headed to the land of the Nile. The sin wasn't so much that he went to Egypt, but that he made that decision there to go there without consulting the Lord. He neglected to look to God to be the one to sustain him when a crisis came. This appears to be his own initiative. God never said, go down to Egypt. 
Abram made a man-centered decision because he was thinking of his needs rather than how God could have provided in a way that would have brought God greater glory. God could have provided water from a rock. He could have brought manna from heaven, dropped quail from the sea. He did that in the future. Could have done that right now for him. When God sends you a trial, it is not only to deepen your faith, but it is also to display his majesty and power as he gives you grace to walk through it. So in a crisis, what we must do first is ask God, what do you want me to do? Instead of default and just do the next logical thing that pops in our head. How often we miss great opportunities for God to minister on our behalf because we panic or we only look to human solutions instead of divine guidance and wisdom, as James 1.5 tells us. Abram came up with his own solution for the famine, failure number one. Then as Abram and Sarai were about to enter Egypt, he has plan number two. Uh, because Sarah was such a natural beauty, even at 65, people lived a lot longer, so she probably was like 35 in appearance. I mean, really. So Abram knew that the Egyptians were noted for cruelty and sexual promiscuity. So he thought that they would kill him. If they saw that that was his wife, they'd get rid of him so they could take her. So now he comes up with another plan. She was to tell the Egyptians that she was his sister, so they would let him live. Hello? He's willing to sacrifice his wife's virtue just for his own safety? This was a wicked, self-centered thing to do. He was acting like a selfish coward and putting Sarai in incredible danger. We see that this was an ongoing default practice <laughs> because we will meet up with this situation again in Genesis 20. Abram didn't think that really this was too bad to do because there was some truth in it. I mean, it was a lie, but not exactly a whole lie because she was his half-sister. And how often we uh, fall into the same thing and justify misleading people because it's kind of true, but it's the way we present it that makes it misleading. A deceptive half-truth is still a whole lie. So rather than trusting God, Abram, on his own ingenuity, attempts to solve another perceived life-threatening problem by using his own clever ingenuity and mind. We are no different from him. How often when we're faced with certain pressures or we're afraid, we come up with all kinds of rationalizations and half-truths and schemes of how we should handle it, just like Abram did. As one person reminds us, faith is living without scheming. It's never right to do wrong in order to do right. This is an example of situation ethics, and we must remember that the end never justifies the mean to that end. He should have trusted God and just told the truth. I mean, if you really believe God's going to keep you alive, give you descendants, the whole thing that you believe, then this is not too big of a thing for God to overcome. Well, this great man of faith... Uh, his faith laps. He fails to apply his faith in the situation he's in. There, there is always a problem when we fail a test from God because we make man-made decisions and rely on our own intelligence. And look at how the lack of faith and sinful choice puts so many people in harm's way. Many people. He wasn't thinking about his wife's safety or her compromising situation she could find herself in. And the truth is, and you know this, that when we sin... We always, always affect everybody else in our life. It's like a rock that, in a pond and boom, 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 boom. It just goes out forever. 
So it came about when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians, it happened just like he thought it would. The woman is beautiful. Pharaoh's officials praised her to Pharaoh. The woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. Therefore then, Pharaoh treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. I can't help but wonder as these droves of gifts came in, was there any guilt about that? <laughs> I'm, but anyways, the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So we see that others are affected negatively by one person's actions. When Abram got to Egypt, everything happened as he feared. Pharaoh took Sarai in the harem, and as her supposed guardian, Abram was rewarded with all this wealth. However, before Sarai could be defiled by Pharaoh, um, God intervenes and strikes Pharaoh and his whole household with some type of a horrible plague of judgment. So Abram's sin has affected Sarai. She had to keep silent when Abram lied about her. He put her in a most impossible situation. Everyone traveling with Abram, they all saw this, this great man of faith, and we're all supposed to like just pretend, yeah, they're not really married. This just went on and on. And then you got Pharaoh and all of his people, and they're all under God's judgment because of Abram's stupidity and self-centeredness in his disobedience. So I remind you that's how sin works. As I've said, we never sin in our personal lives without it affecting everybody, the people closest to us in our family, the people we work with, the people we minister with and attend church with, neighborhoods, and so on. Abram was supposed to be a blessing to the other nations, but instead he's become a source of judgment for them. First, Abram made the man-made decision. Then he relies on himself Others are impacted negatively, and then it brings God's discipline. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they didn't take all back all the gifts either. They just escorted him away with his wife and now all his added possessions. Abram is not going to get away with this sin. The Lord disciplines his own. In Abram's case, this discipline had to be embarrassing and humiliating. Pharaoh found out uh, that Sarah was Abram's wife. We're not told how. But when the king come, becomes aware of the relationship, he, this pagan man, is rebuking Abram, the man of God, and he kicks him out of Egypt. Apparently, Abram got the message, as we see next week in this, our study, that he goes back to the place he had built the altar before he left, and he worshiped God. But even when there's repentance, there are still consequences for our failures. This certainly had to put a strain on his marriage. I mean, Sarai, uh, he had asked to go along with this sinful scheme and put her in danger. I mean, that had to be a hard pill to swallow as a wife. Abram used Sarai as a pawn. And the guilt was on him, as she likely had no dialogue at all. She complied with her husband's wishes, which was the norm for her culture. And as you discussed in your questions today, it's never right to do wrong. We aren't told if this plan was personally ever approved by Sarai, but she certainly found herself being the one in a position where God had to be her protector because of the foolishness of her husband. Sometimes husbands do really stupid and foolish things. And they negatively impact the family. A wife can appeal, plead with him, present truth, try to bring balance. But if ignored, 
She must trust the Lord to intervene while not being a part of any of his sinful behavior. Despite her husband's failure, she still is a woman held up in Scripture to us as the prime example of submission. 1 Peter 3, she is the one elevated. So I couldn't help but think, you know what? She did not hold this against Abram. And the next time he screwed up too. She didn't hold that over him saying, why, why should I submit to a jerk like you? No. She is held up as the highest example of submission to us. Um, and she let this go. Obviously, she forgave her husband. And another negative outcome that came from this whole uh, trip uh, was the additional wealth that Abram uh, accumulated from Egypt. And you know what? We'll see next week. Now Abram and Lot can't stay together anymore because there's too much wealth. And we likely know this is when Hagar was added to the entourage, who would later become this cause of great sorrow to Sarah, who would come up with her own scheme of her own, which the result is in the news every day of the Israeli-Arab conflict. So in applying this, there's so much to learn from Abram's great faith and his failure. From his faith, we learn we must live life in light of the promises of God that he has made in his word. We may not understand or feel like trusting his word, but this is what God requires. Another wonderful example we see from Abram is that his obedience was immediate. Can that be said of you? When you've heard a message in the past, or you've read a scripture or a book, and you've been convicted of a pattern of sin, whether it's anger, um, unkindness, lack of forgiveness, whatever it is, have you immediately addressed those things? Have you taken the steps or is that three weeks ago and you don't even remember what God convicted you about? Do you delay doing what he's convicted you of? Do you follow the Lord even when it doesn't make any sense? Do you seek his direction and his word before making decisions? Or do you just go to default and do the next logical thing? Because you don't really have to think about the situation. You just do what you're supposed to do. We are sinners living in a fallen world, and we live in a body of flesh so tempted by sin. So let's learn from Abram's sin that we must seek the Lord first. We cannot leave him out of any decision-making. It is wrong to scheme rather than to trust the Lord to provide for our need. And the biggest need that we all have is not to be in a right relationship with God because our sin separates us from him. And the scriptures tell us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages for that sin is death, physical and eternal. And the only way for us not to be judged for our own sins is by putting our faith in the promises of God's word that Jesus' death on the cross was for your sin. His sacrifice satisfied the wrath of God and he, we must come to him by faith, turn from our sin, and surrender our lives to him. Abraham believed God and God declared him righteous. Is that true of you? Don't let a day go by without calling on him to make sure he is your savior. And if you've already come to know him, then ladies, make sure your life is characterized by faith and by obedience. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the truths of your word. I thank you for this man, Abram. Thank you for the, all the things he has to teach us um, by his faith and even his failures. Lord, I pray that we would be obedient to your word, that we would respond to the conviction of sin in our own hearts and follow you faithfully today. Lord, as each of these ladies go back out into their world of responsibilities and errands, I pray that they will think on truth and seek to honor you in the way they live. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thank you, ladies.